see everybody here uh, gathered together to worship the Lord this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, let's go to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles uh, scattered throughout the chairs in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, but you would like to own a real life hard copy made out of paper Bible, there are no special tags in there that you're going to walk out and it's going to set an alarm off. You can just walk out with that Bible to yours. We've got plenty. We'll keep, re we'll keep restocking as people take them. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, uh, Genesis is the very first book, so you're in luck this morning. So if you just start, start turning, you'll hit Genesis 17 pretty quickly. Uh, I do just want to remind you of uh, something that we made in prayer for. Uh, those of you who are on our church family email list know uh, the Isomone family uh, had their, uh, their baby was in Gainesville for surgery this week, having his gallbladder removed. He's had a lot of health issues that are very scary. Uh, he had a successful surgery uh, this week, uh, but there's a lot of recovery ahead for him. There's a lot of stress on the Isomone family as they uh, are, are have been stretched between here and Gainesville and trying to take care of their other two kids, plus... Uh, what's going on with Briggs. So please do keep them in prayer. If you know them, think about sending them a note or a text to let them know you're praying for them. And I'm sure there will be opportunities for us to serve them in the near future as we help them uh, through uh, this uh, difficult health experience. But we are thankful that they were able to get him in for an unscheduled surgery uh, to, to take care of this issue. Okay, you should be in Genesis 17 if you feel like being there at this point. Giving you enough running, it's on you now. About 20 years ago, uh, Adidas introduced a slogan for their brand that is still their slogan now, 20 years later. It seems like every 10 minutes, brands are changing their slogan, and it's some new thing. It's like, okay, I guess that's, that's what it is now. Uh, but Adidas has actually stuck with this slogan for 20 years. And that slogan is, impossible is nothing. You may have, you may have heard that slogan or seen it on a, on a, on a TV commercial for Adidas, but that's, that's their thing. Impossible is nothing. And it's one of those slogans that when you hear it, you're like, yeah, wait, what? <laughs> what does that even mean? And then you think through it a little bit, and you're like, oh, I think they're saying nothing is impossible. In which case, you might say, well, why didn't you just say that? But of course, then it wouldn't be a brand slogan. But according to Adidas, the impossible is nothing brand identity is about rebellious optimism. It's about seeing the world for what it can be, not what it is. And that certainly is a great slogan for selling shoes. We all know that's not reality. Now, there are all kinds of great stories from the sports world of, of people who didn't make the team and then they came back and showed everyone. You know, Michael Jordan is kind of the example of that. He didn't even make the ninth grade, he didn't even make the team as a ninth grader, and then he became Michael Jordan, who won all these championships. And there are all these there are all these stories in sports which we like of people who were undersized or counted out and they go on to set all kinds of records or have all kinds of great accomplishments in spite of the odds. And I love those stories as much as you do. 
But for every one story like that, where there's somebody who overcomes the boundaries of what is possible, there's a thousand people who don't. There's a thousand people who had the same opportunities that person had, who had the same work ethic that person had, who had the same internal drive that that person had. They had everything, but for them, they never made it. It didn't work out. They weren't able to accomplish the impossible in their life. They never got a break. And listen, I can believe impossible is nothing all day, but the reality is I'm probably not going to play in the NBA. <laughs> I haven't totally given up on the dream, but the odds are against me becoming an NBA player, not only at this point in my life, but really at any point. <laughs> you see, for most of us, in fact, for all of us, impossible is very much something. You and I live in a world that is boundaried, you can turn that into a verb, boundaried by what is possible. And you are constantly, as a human being, bumping into the boundaries of what is possible. If you've gotten any older, then you know that the things that you could do when you were younger aren't quite so possible anymore. If you haven't put on the cleats in a while and you go out to mix it up with the kids, you quickly realize that what you thought you used to be able to do, you can no longer do. You've run into the boundaries of age or a sedentary lifestyle or whatever, three knee surgeries. You and I are, are constantly running into boundaries based on all kinds of factors of, about what is actually possible. But today we're going to see some of those boundaries, what's possible, begin to bend until they ultimately break. Now, if you've been with us as we've been working through Genesis, then you know that there is an idea of covenant that is very important in the book of Genesis. It's something that we've talked about, and so if this is your first time here, or you've started coming somewhat recently, then maybe you haven't been here for some of those messages. You can go back and listen to them if you want. But what has been happening in Genesis up to this point is we've been focusing on the life of Abram, is that God has been establishing a covenant with Abram. What is, you ask, a covenant? Well, an, a, co a covenant is an agreement. It's simply an agreement between two or more parties. That's a covenant. And in the Bible, there are all sorts of features that make up a covenant, that make up this agreement between two or more parties. A covenant has responsibilities for one or more of those parties. It has blessings that are promised to one or more of those parties. And then it, it often includes penalties for one or more parties based on their failure to keep the covenant. Okay, so that's just a brief outline of understanding what exactly is involved in a covenant. And this covenant that God has been making with Abram has been spread out over three chapters in Genesis. It's spread out between chapters 12, 15, 
and 17. In chapter 12, we see that it is God, God who imposes the covenant on Abram. God is the one who sets the covenant up with Abraham, uh, Abram, and it is God who promises blessings to Abram. We'll talk about what those blessings are in just a moment. We'll remind you of what those things are. But we see right away when God begins establishing this covenant with Abram that this is not a covenant between two parties on equal footing. I mean, that might be an obvious statement to make, but it's very clear. God is imposing blessings on Abram through this covenant. God does not receive any blessings from this covenant. But he imposes this covenant and promises him blessings in chapter 12. In chapter 15, we see God formalize the covenant through a covenant ceremony. And it's, it's, it's odd. We talked about this a little bit when we were going through Genesis chapter 15. But you'll remember that God asks Abram to bring several animals that are divided in half. And then God passes between those animals that are cut in half. And I taught you a, a phrase that can make you sound smart to the people you talk to. Does anybody remember what that phrase is? What's going on there? Oh, okay. Okay. Somebody pay him $5 after the service today because I, I forgot to bring cash today. A self-maledictory oath. A self-maledictory oath. What God is, is doing is basically assuming the curses for failing to keep the covenant upon himself. God is passing through these animal halves and is in this covenant ceremony is in essence saying, may this be done to me and more if I fail to bless you with the promises that I've given. Now, this, is, this is not a covenant on mutual footing. Now we've come to chapter 17. And once again, in chapter 17, we're going to see that, that covenant is a key concept because the word covenant appears no less than 13 times in this chapter. So when we see words that are repeated several times, that's the author's way of saying, hey, I'm talking about something that's important. So underline those things. Underline because this is a key concept of what's going on in this chapter. And here in chapter 17, we now see a responsibility that God places or imposes upon Abram. God is going to give Abram a covenant sign. He has to receive. That's his part in this covenant. But before we get there, God, in essence, tells Abram to grab his birth certificate because God is going to change it. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we read Genesis 17 together and walk through it. If you're there in Genesis 17, look with me, if you will, at verse 1. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, the word of God says this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God is just overwhelming Abram with a repetition of the blessings that he promises him in this covenant. And our passage here starts with a timestamp. If you're watching a movie, it'll say two years later, something like that. And that gives you, helps you be oriented to where you are in the story. And our, our passage starts with the timestamp by telling us that Abram is now 99 years old, if you can believe it. And we know that, that God had, had just appeared to him 24 years earlier when he first gave him the promises that he re reiterates to him in Genesis chapter 17. And the, those two promises can kind of be categorized, those promises can be categorized into the two cat main categories. God promises Abram a people, and he promises him a place. He promises him a people. He promises him a place. God had said, look, Abram, as far as the eye can see, look to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, everything that you can see from horizon to horizon, 360 degrees, all of that's going to be yours for you and your descendants. And God tells him that Abram is not going to fully possess the land for over four centuries. So the promises that, that God delivers to Abram are not going to be fully realized in his lifetime. Remember, it's going to be four centuries of slavery in Egypt. And Abram doesn't know all the particulars of that yet. But God tells him that that's coming. But he's promised to him, the land that you're standing on, that you're living in, one day you're going to own all of it. But not only does he promise him a place, but he promises him a people. And to demonstrate his seriousness about that, God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. And God says, I'm going to make you a father of a multitude of nations. In fact, kings are going to come from you. So what he's saying is you're going to be the, the progenitor of a royal line. Kings, thus kingdoms, are going to come from you. Now, Abraham, this new name that he gives him, sounds like the name, sounds like the word for multitude. And so the Bible tells us that when, when Abram's name switches from Abram to Abraham, it means father of a multitude to signify his very name, the promises that God has given him. So his new name is important reflects a change in status. His new name reflects a change in status, who he is and what he's going to be. And this new name isn't just for, for Abraham. God also gives Sarah a new name. He changes her name from Sarai to Sarah in verses 15 and 16. We're not going to read those verses together, 
But, but all the promises that God gives to Abram, he repeats in shortened form for Sarah. In fact, maybe I will read a little bit just so, just so you, you hear it. Uh, where's, my, where's my verse 15? Here it is. God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. The word Sarah, the name Sarah, means princess. So she's a princess. Kings are coming from her. Now this one is a little bit more complicated because Hebrew scholars don't really know the difference between Sarai and Sarah. They basically both seem to mean princess. So we just understand that God is doing something regardless of how all the language stuff works out. We understand based on what God has done with Abram to Abraham, and, and Sarah's name meaning princess, we know that basically the same thing is happening with both of them. This, their change in status is being reflected by the change in name. Okay. But imagine what it would be like to have that happen to you. Abram, by this time, is, has, is a wealthy man. He has, he's got a lot. So he's a businessman in this area. He likely is, is an influential person in this area as he grows his land holdings, expand, and he acquires more wealth, and he becomes an influential figure in the community. So he knows people. And you can imagine walking him walking into to wherever and the people saying, Hey Abram, how are you doing? And he's like, It's it's father of a multitude now. And can you imagine maybe the difficulty that he would have had saying, hey, can you guys start calling me father of a multitude now? Because he isn't. It would be like me walking in on a Sunday morning and say, uh, you saying, hey, Matt, and I'm saying, it's, it's actually NBA All-Star now. <laughs> you could just call me by that. It's that ludicrous. Abraham has to walk around with the name father of a multitude at 99 years old with now a single child. That couldn't have been easy. And yet this is what God calls him to do. He gives him an impossible name. He gives him a name that is impossible to live up to at the age of 99. But that's what he is, and that's what he's going to be. And so now, to go along with this new name, God gives him the covenant son. Look with me at verse 9 of Genesis 17. And God said to Abram, Abraham, see, I've been saying Abram for several months now, and I've got to make the switch. Probably hard for him too. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you, and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, that sounds like a strange thing, especially. If you walked in here today 
And you're new to the whole Bible thing, and you're like, what? <laughs> and I remember when I was first going into Bible college, and I was thinking about being a preacher, and I, I thought, God, you know we were going to have to preach this stuff someday. <laughs> we're going to have to talk about some odd things. But every male born into Abraham's family was to receive the covenant sign eight days after they were born. And this was not something that God invented for them. This is something that was a common practice in many of the cultures at this time. But what God does is he takes it and repurposes it and now makes it a sign of his covenant with a particular people. He puts guidelines around how it is to be practiced. In short, this mark, this sign, is specifically connected to the promise of descendants. If you receive the sign, there are going to be descendants who follow in keeping with my promises. You might say that this was a sign of their reproductive rights. They had rights the covenant promises of descendants and a land based on the covenant sign that they perpetuated from generation to generation to generation. That's how it worked. Now, I've already mentioned this, but in the next couple of verses, God's going to repeat the promises for Sarah that I read in verses 15 and 16. She's going to be a princess. Kings are going to come from her. Nations are going to come from her. She's not just along for the ride. The Bible includes her in this along with Abraham. And after, after God tells Abraham that you're going to have a son through Sarah, who is 90, and you're 99, when Abraham hears that again, the Bible tells us how he responds in verse 17. In verse 17, the Bible says that Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who's ninety years old, bear a child? You'd laugh too. And I don't think we necessarily have to look at this as a, as a laugh of derision, a laugh of unbelief. There's probably some faithlessness in there, but there's, but he's doing what we all do when we hear something preposterous has just happened. When you hear something preposterous that you never thought would have happened, when you hear it reported, one of the first things you do is laugh. Are you serious? And that's what Abraham would do. Given the realities that we live in, given the, the, the boundaries, the horizons of boundaries that we constantly live in in the world that we're in, when you're 90 and 99, you're past childbearing years. So that kind of stuff is impossible. But Abraham obeys. The rest of the chapter tells us that he and the rest of his household receive the sign of the covenant. They do it right away. 
And then we get to chapter 18. And in chapter 18, the Lord is going to appear to him again. Look with me now at verse 1 of chapter 18. We're covering some ground. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. The next seven verses describe the flurry of activity that occurs as Abraham and Sarah spring into high gear so that they can show ancient Near Eastern hospitality, as was the custom of the day, to their, uh, to their guests. You've got to remember that, that they can't just see what's in the refrigerator. Okay, they can't say, oh, I wouldn't have time to cook, so let's order DoorDash today. They've got to actually go get a calf and kill it and butcher it and prepare it. So we're talking about a time-consuming thing. But they spring into action, all hands on deck, to be able to prepare a meal for their guests. And while their guests are eating, they have something to tell Abraham. Look at verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah, like any good wife, was listening at the tent, the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? After I'm past my childbearing years, you're telling me that the thing that I've wanted for my whole life and the thing that's been promised to me the last 24 years, I'm finally going to experience the pleasure of having that. She laughs. Just like Abraham, she's not the only one. She laughs at the ludicrous idea that they're going to have a son in their old age. And what follows next is both incredibly awkward and hilarious. I love the Bible. People who think the Bible is boring haven't read it. Because, as I've said several times, there is some crazy stuff in here. And there are some, if you stop to think about it, there is some really interesting dialogue and back and forth that happens in the Bible. And this is one of those instances. So remember, she's just behind the tent flap, trying to stay out of sight, but she's trying to make sure she hears all the stuff that's going on in the conversation. Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she laugh? Okay, remember, she's not out there. He says, why did she laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? 
We're not talking about ordinary men. We're talking about the angel of the Lord. And he asks the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid, as you would have been if someone read your thoughts behind the tent laugh. <laughs> Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid, and he said, No, you did. <laughs> I read through the Bible usually. Usually in my Bible reading plan, I, I end up going through this at the beginning of the year, and whenever I read this passage for years now, I've told Erica, we just read one of my favorite parts of the Bible. <laughs> because he said, you laughed, and she goes, I didn't laugh. She's like, oh yeah, you did. <laughs> and you just think about the awkwardness of that situation. You're like, well, what's she going to say? Like, she wasn't there, and he knows, and she's trying to do her best to smooth it over, and it's not going in. He's not going to politely let it go. He's like, hey, Love the Bible. So Sarah gets called out. There's a phrase that I want to zero in on this morning that I think kind of, as we surface it, kind of encapsulates the lesson that I want us to walk away from this passage of Scripture with. That phrase is actually a question that's found in verse 14 of chapter 18, which we read. Should probably jumped out to you. But in the midst of this laughing, like, no, not, you don't really mean that this is going to happen, right? And the angel of the Lord says this Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything. Too hard for the Lord. That's the question that we started talking about at the beginning of our time together today. You and I live in a world where we can see horizons and boundaries. We live in a world where there are things that are possible and there are things that are not possible. And the question that the text is asking us is, does God live in that world? And the answer to that question is a resounding no. God does not live in a world with boundaries about what is and what is not possible. So you and I can talk all day about what is or is not possible. God doesn't live that plane. And so when the angel of the Lord is asking them, is anything too hard for the Lord? He's inviting them to reevaluate the way that they look at the world and to answer that with the question, well, of course not. A 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman can actually have a baby if God says they can. You and I are constantly running into the boundaries of what is actually part of the 
of what is actually possible. But when God is part of the equation, all of a sudden, the possibilities become endless. The truth that I want us to consider this morning from this text is simply this. With God, nothing is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. Abraham and Sarah are on this journey of faith. We often think of Abraham and Sarah as people who God appears to them all the way back at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, and from there on out, they're, like, they're good. They're people of faith. But we see their faith faltering over and over again. They're on a journey of having their faith developed. And part of that journey is learning that the normal rules for what is possible get thrown out the window when God is involved. And you and I need to learn that same lesson. When you think about it, there are some parallels between the experience of Abraham and Sarah and our experiences as a Christian. And I, I want to highlight just two of them, and I only want to talk about one of them for the most part this week talk about the other one a little bit next week. But two of the things that I highlighted from this text that God does for them is he changes their name and he gives them a covenant son. And there are parallels that apply to us as well. Do you realize that there's a sense in which God has changed your name? Here's what I don't God has appeared to each one of us as we become Christians and followers of Jesus and given us, given us a new name so that we go to the... I don't even know how to get the name changed, but I assume there's a way to do that. Get your birth certificate and you get the new name on it. That hasn't happened. But you have had a name change. You are a category of person now. You want to know what that category is? Some of you are probably already thinking it. I'm hearing it. You are, I heard it there, a saint. Amen. Now, some of us, based on the of aren't saints the people that are really good at being Christians? That's false. Here's the interesting thing that the Bible does. The Bible democratizes sainthood. Sainthood is not for the select few who show their devotion to your special acts. Every single person who has received the saving power of Jesus Christ is now called a saint. Which means if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, if you have been born again, if you have been given new life, believe it or not, you're a saint. And in case you struggle to believe that, or you might struggle to believe it for the person sitting next to you, because if there's one thing you know for sure, they do not act like a saint. <laughs> what, you want to think about the one church in the entirety of the New Testament, the one church that you think is the most dysfunctional church in the entirety of the New Testament. What city would it be in? Corinth. Corinth. Yes. 
The Corinthian church is the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament. They are suing each other. They are arguing about their famous, te their most, uh, their their most favorite teachers. Does that sound familiar? Saying I'm with this and I'm with that. I think we're doing the same thing. Uh, they are tolerating immorality that their pagan neighbors don't even tolerate. They're arguing about the spiritual gifts. When they, when they come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul tells them that they're eating and drinking damnation on themselves and the way they're doing it, okay? They're the poster child for a dysfunctional church. If anybody couldn't be saints, it would be them. And yet, the opening of the letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, to those called to be saints. If they are... You are. <laughs> Paul doesn't say, if you guys start cleaning up your act, you get a little bit better at this being a Christian thing. Who knows? When I come back around and visit, you might be saints. Their change in name signals a change in status. And they have, given, they have been given a name of something that they have not fully realized yet in their own lives, just like you. And the Bible calls you a saint, even though the full realization of what that would mean in your life is not yet what it should be. The Bible in the New Testament calls Abraham the father of all who share the same kind of faith he had. And then it says this in Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That is the definition of a God who does impossible things. He is the kind of God who brings life out of death and can call into existence things which do not yet exist. With God, nothing is impossible. Abraham was the father of a multitude before he was the father of a multitude, and you are a saint before you're a saint. Furthermore, and I'll say more about this next week, we too receive covenant signs in the new covenant. They had a covenant sign setting them apart as the people of God. We have something called baptism, which is a sign that introduces people to the body of Christ. Acts says baptized, added to the church. It's a visible demonstration. Baptism is a visible demonstration that God has done the impossible. That he's raised yet another person from spiritual death to spiritual life. That he's taken a dirty sinner and made them clean. That he's taken his spirit and poured his spirit into that person so that he indwells that person and gives them a new heart and new life. God, nothing is impossible. 
book you may or may not have read about Alice in Wonderland. You've probably seen the movie. But there's this spot in Alice in Wonderland where Alice meets the White Queen. And the White Queen tells Alice that she is 101 years, 5 months, and a day old. Alice tells her that she doesn't believe that. And so the queen encourages her to try again. And the book says, Alice laughed. And she says, there's no use trying. One can't believe impossible things. The queen <laughs> then tells her that the reason she can't do that is because it's a lack of practice. And then she says, when I was your age, I always did it for a half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. It's clear to me that you and I could stand to believe six impossible things before breakfast every day. Let me explain what I do and do not mean by that. This is important. I do not mean that if you believe for it enough, you'll get it. The Bible doesn't tell us that. I do not mean that if you just manifest it, you put it out there, you'll get it. I don't mean that that God thinks, well, they must really believe. I have to give it to him now. It, it doesn't work like that. God is not a cosmic vending machine. But here's what I do. Many of us, because we have been, we have bumped into the boundaries of what is possible and what is not possible so many times in our own life, we have we have fallen into the bad habit of believing that God is just like us. And that he's dealing with the same constraints that we're constrained by. And we don't take the time to rehearse that there are all kinds of impossible things that God can do. Let me give you a suggestion to make this real. I did this last night as I was journaling and thinking about this. I started writing down things that I believe God could do, but probably wouldn't. And I started writing them down because when you believe that God can do something, but he's not, you have stopped believing in the God, the Apostle. Let me throw out a concrete one for you. One of the greatest griefs of parents who have moved into having their kids go out of the house is kids who leave the faith. And you have those moments when you're trying to talk them back into the faith and they're not having it. 
And then you become resigned to the fact that they're never going to come back. And the question I always want to ask is, why do you believe that? Because they told you? They get to decide what's possible and what's not possible? You get to decide what's possible and what's not possible? I'm not saying that if you believe for it enough, God will magically give you the things that I want, but I that you want, but I am going to say it is an insult to our Creator to decide what He can and cannot do. It's clear to me that you and I could stand a good dose of believing six impossible things before breakfast every morning to remind ourselves that I live in Korea, I live in constraints, God doesn't. I'm over my turn. But let me say something to those of you who are here with us this morning who may not be Christians. Jesus once shocked his disciples in Matthew chapter 19 by teaching them that it was easier for a camel to fit through the eye of the needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Aside, Jesus wasn't saying wealthy people can't enter the kingdom of God. But what he was doing was confronting thinking with them because their assumption was if there was anybody who was obviously blessed by God, it's wealthy people, right? I mean, we, we still think that sometimes. That those who are living the blessed life have the most stuff. That's a very American thing. Or we might say those who are, those who are obeying the most Good at following Jesus are the most likely to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus tells them that that's not how it works. And when he tells them that it's difficult for wealthy people to let go of their wealth to go through that eye of the needle to enter the kingdom, they say, well, then who can be saved? They can't. And Jesus says, Jesus looked at them in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26 and says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You know one of the greatest testimonies to the fact that God does impossible things? You're sitting here this morning. You were going your own way, doing your own thing. And God said, actually not. You're going to come here. I'm going to make you my child. And I'm going to give you blessings both in this life and in eternity of blessings through nothing that you've done. Your presence is proof. God does impossible things. And if you're sitting here with us this morning and think, well, they don't know me, they don't know what I've done, or where I've been, boy, have we got good news for you. <laughs> we got a whole bunch of people who have probably outsend you. And God's shown us grace. He can show it to you. You come to Him in repentance and faith. Believe that what he has accomplished on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection can save you from your sins. And you call on his name and you experience the impossible this morning. The salvation of your sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have done the impossible in making us your own. 
We thank you for the lessons that we have learned together this morning. We pray that you would help those of us who have become bitter or cynical about the way life has gone. To stop listening to the other voices of what is and what is not possible. And remember the question that was asked us this morning in your word. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We ask these things in Jesus' name.